Hi, this is Florian with a new podcast guest. So would you be so kind to introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, my name is Jan Leo Grande. I'm, I, was for, I worked for 15 years for a company called Wirecard. And after the company ended last year in August, I was writing a book about my career. It's called Bad Company. And uh, yeah, and now I'm a freelance consultant uh, in innovation, in marketing and certain other topics, actually. Cool. So did your whole um, working journey starting with Wirecard or did you had a job before? Wirecard. <laughs> yeah, I had a job before Wirecard. Actually, I, I was I was studying um, a German literature, which is always like uh, a good thing <laughs> to to study because it's leading nowhere, right? And um, but I was starting to work as a journalist back then. Uh, nothing really spectacular. Um, And from them, from that point, I was moving into marketing. So I was, I was writing lengthier articles for Werbung und Verkaufen, which is one of the leading marketing magazines in Europe. And from that, it was only a, like a quick uh, step um, into real marketing. So I was working for a lot of agencies and uh, doing a lot of uh, B2B campaigns, actually. And um, yeah, in the year 2005, I got a call from a friend who knows a friend uh, who was working for Wirecard and they were asking for a copywriter. And this is where the start story really started. Why did, uh, like, why did marketing fascinate you? Like, what was the main reason for that you moved from journalism to, um, to marketing? Oh, this is a tough question, actually. Um, I think um, I moved there because the market was moving there, right? In, in a way, uh, freelance uh, journalism was working good for uh, a pretty long time. But then when the first wave of uh, internet solutions came up, uh, a lot of uh, print journalists were actually suffering and, and they still are, actually. And uh, for me, it was I was always fascinated by advertising. Uh, because I was writing so much about it, right? I was uh, doing uh, case studies, interviews with all the masters of the universe in, in advertising. And so I thought to myself, maybe I can also do it. And, and then I tried. But I have to say, I was always the guy for the more technical, complex uh, things and uh, not for uh, Coca-Cola or Pepsi. So I was working for IBM, for, for Microsoft, for everything that is more in the B2B area. <clears throat> so you specialized your marketing skills on explaining more technical stuff or like <clears throat> working yeah. with more more technical depth stuff. So yeah. you said like you learned a lot from the masters of the marketing <laughs> universe. So what what was the key learnings you took or what are the key learnings you would give away now if someone asked you what what is good marketing and what do I need to do to create good marketing? I, th I think this is also a, a tough question. I think the first of all is the consequence, right? Um, not letting it go. If you talk to someone, like I was interviewing Jean-Marie von Matt uh, uh, a while ago in my career, and he was like, he was so stubborn on things, right? He was so focused on what he was doing. And this is what you need as a marketeer, I, I, I think, that you really focus and see 
the brand as a living creature, right? That you uh, that you have to pet, that you have to create, that you have to um, give life to, and you have to take care about all the little nitty gritty details of it. And this uh, was something I learned. Uh, throughout my career, and this was something that we did uh, quite extensively um, at Wirecard in the very beginning when we were restarting the branch, so to say. So, um, how old was Wirecard when you joined them? Um, mm -hmm. Because you said like you restarted it, so it's, it seems like it's it's a it was right on the beginning yeah, for, from, not right the founding from, it was no 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 the, the founding of the company was actually in 1999 um it was a startup uh, back then so a small startup in the first internet bubble economy and it's easy to uh, to read a lot about this uh, the company was not so successful from the very beginning they had some problems and stuff like this and i was i was um i was joining the company back in uh, 2005 And there it was kind of a restart really for the company. When, when I joined, the company was looking very much like a mid-sized company from the outskirts of Munich, right? Um, they had two globes in their logo. Everything was like... Um, was looking internationally, but um, it, it wasn't really, it was not, the, the brand was not there. And what we were trying to establish back then was really a, um, a different brand, a modern brand, like something very focused, uh, very lean. If you look at the Wirecut logo, for, 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 for example, It's just a wording, right, um, in a certain typeface. And in the very beginning, all of this was pretty new to everybody at Wirecard. Um, I think in the very beginning, what we tried to do is create a blueprint of the company to um, that the company will be in a few years. And um, after a while, the company actually was becoming more and more or uh, this vision of an international global um, tech company right in the very beginning it was pretty hard there was a lot of um, there was a lot of resistance actually to okay. the strategy that we were developing pretty pretty interesting so um, let's let's go back in time so mm -hmm. what, what was Wirecard doing in the time when you joined them like what was the description of what what their business model looks like or what what they did <clears throat> yeah, I think it was a, a, a. They were starting as a as a payment company, as a company who was like opening e-commerce for credit card payments mainly um, in Germany and in, in Europe. And this was what the company was doing and was intending to do. It was mainly about credit card, credit card acquiring um, in e-commerce. So that like a random online shop is able to accept credit card payments as a payment method exactly. if exactly. a customer wants to um, wants to buy something mm -hmm. and then there's a mm -hmm. technical thing that like you need to be able to to integrate integrate it in, into your shop system and you need to yeah. be able to fulfill all the requirements of customers right. and of. <clears throat> Like yeah, there's a lot of a lot of uh, nerdy stuff connected to this, from you know, uh, from licenses to certifications to bank license to settlement of money and, and all of the things that uh, um, you heard about going wrong uh, in the very end of Wirecard. Okay, and 
And you said like during that time, it was kind of a startup slash mid-sized company. So how many mm. people worked there and how many customers they had? So what was the, the point on this, on this side? Mm. I think there were around 120 people in, uh, in Munich back then. And customers, I, I, sorry, I can't remember exactly how many there, there were, but um, I think a few, few hundred, maybe a few thousands or something. Um, the company was not, uh, um, was not a big company back then. Yeah. You have to be honest. Uh, um, it was one of the companies in, in Germany. We say something like the Speckgürtel of Munich. You know, <laughs> I don't know how to translate this in proper English. Uh, but these kind of smaller tech companies that all around the city actually. Yeah. So yeah, not really a startup anymore, but also not really a right exactly. a really fully established uh, in German. You say Mittelstand, mm. like mid-sized company, which is solid mm. and existing for yeah. ages. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. And then you said like you 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 starting to see their you starting to create a new blueprint for them to to mm. bring it to the next level. And you said also as tip, you need to kind of um, create a marketing, create a living. A, a living thing like a, a living how you would say like a life into the company company mm -hmm. story company marketing so how did you mm -hmm. tackle that like how did how did you establish that first of all i have to say I, I'm, i was starting as a copywriter so back then there was a guy called simon schaefer um simon um moved from from wirecard later and founded i think factory in in berlin so a big startup hub and he was the mastermind of the first years that i spent on wirecard and he was really i would say a really crazy guy because he was convinced of his vision of of the brand that it has to be play in one league with lufthansa with microsoft with apple so i remember the first presentation um that he did uh in front of the entire company he was uh headlining all the the big logos of 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 microsoft and of sap and stuff like this and then he was presenting the wirecut logo and everybody was looking pretty confused um But he saw this kind of the, the, the chance um, that out of this uh, um, out of this company you can create um, like a, a global um, uh, tech company. And I think this is uh, what he brought to the table. He saw something in the company that only a few people saw back then. And was it driven by the CEO? Normally, such stuff from. If we, we stay in a startup room, it's mainly mm. driven by the CEO that like he's the visionary and he pushes and he sees it that like his startup of five people will become the next Microsoft, Google, Facebook, you name it. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit complex, more complex. And in, in, inside Wirecard, uh, it was a complex company back then. Um, there were different uh, people that had different visions uh, what to create with the company. And one was the CEO, Dr. Markus Braun, and the other was uh, Paul Bauer, who was part of the advisory board. And I think that uh, Simon was working more for the advisory board. And um, after Mr. Schichtegroll was leaving the company, uh, also Simon was forced to leave. I mean, it's a, a story that uh, we all know pretty much and uh, um, but I think um, 
this this early vision of the company uh, influenced also the CEO that uh, back then uh, he always um, he always was looking at Wirecard as a potential global company, but nobody believed him uh, <laughs> at that time, right? Uh, so Markus, our CEO, he was uh, very visionary, uh, but I remember in a lot of in a lot of uh, meetings, people were like being friendly when he was there but afterwards we're saying oh gosh i can't believe that he really thinks we will go to the size of a company or something like this right mm, yeah it's it's like yeah without a vision it's it's hard to like it's hard to without a goal to create something um if you just go yeah. along so a vision always helps to define a direction and It makes clear yeah. what the next steps is, but especially hard. And I understood, I understand why why it's um, a bit weird if if you're not if you're far away from your vision. So how how did you with marketing help to go into the into this direction? Like how how did marketing help there step by step? Mm. The first first thing that we did was actually um, everything that was connected to the logo. And the second thing is what the entire wording, right? Um, when you talk about these kind of mid-sized companies, um, you know normally how this works. There's a lot of talks about uh, nerdy technical stuff and um, the offer is not really clear and, and, and all these nitty-gritty elements of the um Of the company brand has have to be established right you have to take it to a different level from a company that is delivering million services to some of the com to a company that is really focused on, on, on certain strengths actually so what how would how does it look in wirecard like what was the how, how did you transform like what was the transformation mm -hmm. of the slogan The transformation of the slogan, or like the transformation you talked about. I, I think inside Wirecard, and I think the um, what was important was really the focus on innovation um, and bringing the company, the technology company, together with um, this kind of uh, crazy innovation factory. I think this was what was Wirecard was all about, right? It was. People believed until the end that it was one of the most innovative company in the, in the ducts. And you see all these um, emotions that were going on like one year ago around the company. I mean, um, nobody believed um, the, the, the true story and not all, everybody knew the true story of the company, actually. So I think this um, creation of... Uh, an image as one of the leading innovators in um, in, uh, in the world of e-commerce was really um, the, the the main thing that uh, was Wirec uh, was um, um, was dominating Wirecard from the marketing perspective. Mm. Yeah, but like if I, if I would see now the the landscape of startups, probably. Like 50% or 90%, like or 70% of the startups, right, uh, that they are innovative in their sector because um, that's the easiest mm -hmm. way to see to say that why you should exist because you are more innovative than your competitors because you're more lean, you're more small. So, um, 
how, how did it show on a practical perspective mm -hmm. that or did I, I it show on a practical is, perspective mm, that mm. Wirecard was more innovative than their competitors? For, for, for quite a long time, actually, I, I think that the company had a good mix between this origin as a startup, right, and um, this kind of growing company. And the reason for this was that uh, the founding uh, guys of Wirecard were still ahead of the company, right? There was Dr. Marcus Brown. Marcus, um, he was uh, joining the company as CEO, I think, in 2001. And Jan Marschalek, who joined the company in 1999, I think. So this, these people who created Wirecard, they were there until the very end. Yeah. And... In the very beginning, it was the case, if you had a good idea, you can go to these people. And uh, um, if they were convinced that this is really something that uh, will take us further, they will give you a budget and they will allocate resources and you will do it, right? And in other companies, this, I think, um, would be kind of impossible. So I remember one time that um, later in the development when I was leading uh, the mobile development unit at Wirecard, uh, Alipay called me. So Alipay, the big uh, Chinese uh, payment scheme. And I remember this was a, just a cold call. They saw me on a, key, a keynote in, at some event. And they called me in if I could help them in their expansion into Europe. And I was talking to the sea um, levels of Wirecard about that. And they said, okay, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's, Uh, take everything aside and really trying to bring this client uh, to um, to Germany um, with all our power. And actually, after three months, we were live at the airport Munich. And after a few months later, um, we were live with Alipay in all the major luxury luxury shops in, in Paris and London, uh, uh, all over Europe. And something like this, right, is not normal. We're not happen like in, if you work in Deutsche Bank or will not happen when you work in Commerzbank. Um, it will happen when there is this certain entrepreneurial spirit still there. So so you you got a cold call of um, a manager of Alipay and then you just right. went to the, to the heads right away like just to, to Marcus Brown and Yeah, in the uh, very beginning, them. nobody. Yeah, in the very beginning, nobody believed me. Right, as was kind of a bit of craziness because in this call, I mean, it was Alipay. He is Alipay, and we have an idea. And um, in the very beginning, I, I think a lot of people said to me, like, uh, "We don't know this, if this is serious." And then I remember this in the in the first meeting, uh, six people from Shanghai flew in. To Munich uh, to this first meeting, and then we said, "Okay, these guys um, are taking this really serious." And uh, and it was fitting really nicely in the strategy of the company as uh, wanting to become like a global, you know, uh, company for payments and and financial transactions. And um, this was a uh, yeah, it was a really great story, a crazy story. Uh, to do something like this. And I think this was uh, the part that was, um, yeah, where Wirecard was showing something very special. And I think in the, also later when the, 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 the company was in the ducks, a lot of young people with an entrepreneurial spirit joined the company because they had the feeling you can change something. Yeah, this is a ducks company where you can, with a good idea, you can do 
things, right? Um, it's not uh, as structured or hierarchical as Siemens or BMW or other companies. There's a chance to change something. And this was tremendous uh, in, in the team spirit of the company. As a, and a, a little practical question, because um, mm. how, how was the process to get an appointment with the CEO? Because as bigger the company as the more pain it is to get like even one spot in his calendar so yeah this was um actually i had a i was reporting directly to marcos for six or seven years so it was uh and and, and back then he uh, we always had a monthly or bi-monthly one to one-on-one and i think He never changed it, right? If the, if the meeting wasn't the calendar, the meeting took place. It's just, um, and it was very structured. He always said, if someone has a good idea, he can go to my office. And I said to him, Marcus, uh, nobody can go to your floor, actually, because you needed a special key card <laughs> to come in, this, in the CEO floor, right? But he was thinking, okay, people can just walk in. Um, Fact is that he always, uh, he was not, um, and I think that uh, um, there are a lot of reports about this. He always seemed to have a bit more time than other CEOs, actually. Okay. But, but it's a nice, interesting example that like he had a special floor where nobody exits. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's always an open door, but hey, nobody can reach it, but it's open. Yeah. So, um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And, and right. Just out of a business development perspective, because like that's the typical P mm. business development uh, issue. Yeah. Um, so how did you like? Because you said okay, uh, you um, helped Alipay to make mm. payments in the big luxury stores in Europe. Mm -hmm. So did you also use it to enter the the Asian market, or was it just one site? Just Alipay to use. Just it was first of all, it was just Alipay to Europe because they saw. Um, I mean, it was a China to China thing, more or less, right? A lot of Chinese tourists were going to Europe and they were using Visa and MasterCards to do the payments, actually. And, and, and some were even using cash. And for a company like Alipay and, and uh, later on WeChat also, um, this was not a problem. But this was a challenge, right? Uh, they wanted to close this gap and they wanted to enter the German, the European market, but only focusing on the Chinese tourists that were pretty active um, uh, back in that time. And um, later on, I think that Wirecard did also business in Southeast Asia with um, Alipay, uh, in Singapore, Malaysia and the Philippines, but not in the motherland China. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like this, the business case alone, uh, rich Chinese people shopping in Europe and helping them to use Alipay directly. It's, it's a, I think a big use case because especially the luxury scores, stores have higher revenue. So, um, this, yeah, it sounds like a good it, yeah. Case. In the very beginning, um, I think, um, it was all about the, the rich and very wealthy people of China, but, um, later on, I think, uh, um, it was a mass market phenomenon. So everybody in, in China wanted to go to Europe once in a while, right. For one time. And, um, There was this kind of very wealthy guys who were buying Gucci, Prada and whatever. I remember that the highest transaction um, that we ever saw was in a, in, a, in a luxury store in Paris. It was over 40,000 euros. 
so really uh, high, high spending. But we always also saw people um, spend a decent amount of money at Remova, at um, VMF, or those kind of German brands, right? Um, that were relevant for the Chinese. And the crazy thing was that a lot of these German things were produced in China. Yeah. Uh, so um, this was uh, pretty crazy. But for the Chinese, the fact was that they that they bought it in Europe. In Germany was a kind of, a, I would say, a security factor, part of the plan, actually. Yeah, yeah. it's it's yeah. also like the whole <clears throat> landscape of production in China is kind yeah, of really yeah. difficult. <clears throat> For example, mm -hmm. they also produce uh, VW cars, but mm -hmm. there is a difference between the production in China and the production in Europe. So it seems sure. like that the production quality in <clears throat> Europe is still higher than in chi China itself. So you can buy in VW in China, produced in China, and it's more cheap, mm -hmm. cheaper than the Europe produced one. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it seems like, or at least uh, I think one year ago, two years ago, you still see the difference. So it still means uh, a higher standard if you can afford a German, uh, like a Europe or German produced VW. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like the, 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 the difficult. The, 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 Complicated. Yeah. The, the crazy thing about this was, I think it was the first time for me that something that I did was really visual, right? Um, normally what Wirecut was providing was uh, pretty digital. It was like, you know, you didn't came across the company in a payment process because it was all white labeled. But yeah. if you walk to Airport Munich, Right, you saw all these signs of pay with Alipay and WeChat, and I remember uh, being there on a flight to a holiday with my kids, and my kids never really understand what I did with this entire payment stuff. And I was guiding them through the duty-free shops. I was saying, "Look at this sign. This is what your father is actually doing." So it was for the for, for one of the yeah. It was suddenly it was pretty concrete. They were not impressed. I have to say this, <laughs> but at least I had uh, some story to tell what i'm doing i think there are a few a few kids like they are like or maybe close to no kids which are impressed by their doing of their parents so yeah. i heard also that uh, elon musk kids are really bored of the the rocket factory or like the car factory he built it and even really? <laughs> if yeah, you imagine it should be the coolest <laughs> thing ever for a kid to be able to play in a rocket factory but i mm. heard some somewhere that like they are not really impressed so okay, this is this is, seems this to be normal. Good. That, <laughs> this, this is this good because my kids um, saw this tremendous change in my life. Right, I was when I was working for Wirecard, I was often uh, traveling on business trips and something like this. And after the Wirecard story ended, uh, and there was a Corona story starting, um, also I was at home all the time. I wasn't sitting in my my working room and and uh, doing Zoom calls like everybody else. And then my kids said something like that you're staying at home all the time now right they did. first of all they said you're always gone and then suddenly i was the guy sitting in the uh in his in his, in his private office and doing interviews and and zoom calls all the time right so it was pretty confused crazy. right like opposite expected yeah yeah um so you said like this was one of the few times which what you did where uh, was visible. Mm -hmm. um, what else would you say were 
really big successes in the 14 years of working for Wirecard? Uh, it's, 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 um, I, th I think it's, it's pretty hard to say because you know the end of the company, right? Um, but I think, um, One of the biggest personal um, successes for me was, um, I think around the year 2011, 2012, as a marketing guy, I was doing a lot of UI UX for mobile payment solutions. And um, back then, I remember that the board gave me the position of um, VP of mobile services. Um, so I was running a product division then. And I was coming from this marketing background and I was doing uh, super polished slides and, 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 and the screens and stuff like this. But now I was um, overtaking really development. They said, you have to make it work. And I didn't know how to do it, right? I was having these kind of sleepless nights um, uh, talking with developers because they were not taking me serious. And I didn't know how a technical team looked like, uh, how Q&A is done, uh, you know, what a business analyst is actually doing. All of this came to me as a total surprise. And I did it and I, I, I had my... My real, it was a real challenge um, for me. But in the end, we did the mobile wallets for, for Vodafone, for Deutsche Telekom, for Orange, for O2, for Singtel, and dozens of other companies. And to do this, right, to to do this transformation from someone who's only talking about products and advising products in building stuff, Uh, was something that was one of the biggest challenges in my, my entire professional life. It sounds also interesting. Like, how did it came that you changed so much from marketing away? So I think marketing I, I, to I was, innovation hmm. is already hard, but marketing to leading product development is even further. Uh, so yeah. how did it came and how did you tackle this challenge? The, the, the reason was because I was super stubborn on this mobile thing, right? And there were not so much people in the company back then who were knowing what mobile what means or what kind of, uh, you know, um, applications you need and stuff like this. So inside the company, there were not other people who were asking for this, this role, actually. And... Um, I think I, I outlined also in my book uh, a bit that inside Wirecard, um, these kind of stories were something that were happening quite often. Um, in Germany, also, we say Quereinsteiger, so people starting somewhere and were taking to totally different um, departments and stuff like this. And um, I think it was a super brave uh, decision of the board um, to give me this, uh, um, the product division. And the product division inside Wirecard was always the holy grail of uh, hardcore development. And I was not overtaking the division. I was building it up, right? I was uh, employee number one of mobile services. And I was doing everything alone. And then I was hiring a lot of people. And uh, after a while, I think I was leading a team of, I think, 150 to 200 people all over the world. So it was a, a huge challenge. But you can, I, I think... Uh, You can learn a lot if you if you if you really um, if you really want to, 
And there was always something, somebody who was looking up for these kind of challenges, right? After six years of wirecard marketing or something, I, I was really looking for a new challenge. So I was always the guy who was constantly looking for something new. And um, this, uh, this is uh, what my entire life is uh, all about. I cannot stay too long at some, at some point. I always uh, try to think, what's next? What is the next level? Do you have an idea why the board uh, choose you to, to build it up? Uh, and the reason was, the, um, was pretty, pretty easy. Um, in the very beginning, they didn't know how to, to tackle this. So there was Deutsche Telekom, there was Vodafone and uh, O2. They, was having, they were having um, a joint venture. It's called Empass back in the days. And, um, and they didn't, I, I mean, in principle, uh, the board knew that uh, I was doing great presentation on the future of mobile payments. And they said, okay, now you have to tell it to the, whatever executive, uh, the, the, the people of Vodafone actually. And uh, they are here. They, they, we need someone who's uh, doing a presentation and stuff. And so I, I did it and I was uh, talking more and more about the experience that you need for uh, mobile payment. It's not only about payment. That's also about value adds and stuff like this. And I was building little demonstrators, mock-ups, prototypes. Um, and I think after a certain while, everybody was thinking, oh, these prototypes are look, looking nice. Uh, let's go into prioritization with that. And <laughs> this uh, yeah, was costing a lot of time to get it from a prototype level to a real product. And I, I think a lot of uh, people who made the same journey know what I'm talking about. So, and a payment wallet means like they wanted to have their own payment system build it up so that over yeah. in their ecosystem, people are able to pay properly. So yeah, the, the, the payment, uh, so the payment part was uh, not so heavy lifting, actually. It was the entire mobile experience, right? If you now go to N26, you have this entire uh, mobile um, onboarding or sign-up experience. Um, you see your balance, you see everything in real time, you get your notifications, you get value-added services in real time and stuff like this. Um, this was pretty hard to do because the company normally was not, um, a payment company was not really working in the way that every RP was open and everything was uh, in real time, um, every process. Um, and we did, uh, it was uh, invested a lot of work to make it, um, um, a customer experience that is really living up to the standards that especially Vodafone wanted. Right, it's a big company. A lot of people um, understanding um, customer behavior and stuff, and, and there you have to change a lot. It was not so much about the nitty-gritty forms of payment, because in principle, this was a mobile credit card transaction. Right, um, the form factor was different, but then uh, there were a lot of uh, things you have to keep in mind um, to do this. And the, the biggest invest that we did was in an own loyalty platform. So we did give cashbacks and uh, uh, I was supposed to say, we need the cashback in, in real time. Something like you do a transaction and um, if the transaction is eligible to uh, cashbacks, you need the cashbacks in like a few milliseconds. And this, I mean, 
<laughs> I think even Apple now is not doing something like this. Um, it was pretty, it was pretty advanced back then. Awesome. And did you had a design team in the background? So because that helped you to get the knowledge of the X, like UX um, user experience, yeah. and helped you to to create mockups so that for your presentations. Yeah, yeah. This I had. Uh, we were working with some uh, Berlin agency, said service design. This was not the biggest thing, right? So for me, it was not the biggest thing um, to create these uh, slideware and presentations. For me, the biggest thing was to understand how software architecture is really working, right? And how you develop something that is really working. So yeah. uh, the thing that I needed most was um, someone, I would say, a very flexible software architect who was taking me through the entire process of the development because I was a total newbie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you probably need just a simple CTO. So did you just then <clears throat> work together with the CTO of, of Wirecard itself or how did you, or did you hire your own or how did you approach I had, a, I, had a, I had a good um, some some good external teams that were doing a lot of the applications and they were guiding me through a lot of uh, processes. Um, the CTO Wirecut was this is a funny thing uh, was Dr. Marcus Brown, so the CEO. He was uh, CEO and CTO. And uh, I think he was not the guy you go to and ask, well, how, how do you develop things, right? So I was pretty much on, on my own, really. And uh, I remember really having this, I think for one year, this kind of sleepless nights, because I was thinking always, sometimes they will see, I can't do it, right? <laughs> It's a failure. And uh, But the good thing was, right, um, that I was not going for marketing directly to innovation. This would be too easy. Um, because what a lot of marketing people that are consulting people that move into innovation don't understand is how hard it is to build up a product, uh, how complex, how time-consuming um, it is, and how many nitty-gritty things you have to keep in mind, right? It's, it's pretty easy to build a nice mock-up or a demonstrator or something like this or a POC, but to take it into productization, right, to really also manage all the escalations that are connected to uh, operative product, um, this is what a lot of people really underestimate. And for me, this was uh, a very good um, preparation, so to say, for my later role uh, at, uh, as a global head of innovation at Wirecard, because I didn't really understand what it is to take a product live. Yeah, it's also something I, I, like I see often <clears throat> people lack the technical understanding, or like especially mm -hmm. if you are in more complicated areas like payment and also typical topic right now, blockchain. Like, um, yeah. it's, it's really painful to see how people don't understand the technical background. And, um, but to be honest, I would also say it's kind of weird that like you don't have a CTO, which helps you in this position because it's a typical job of a CTO to help yeah. someone like you 
to understand it better and to lead you a bit in building up the team and building up the project and so on. And um, no, yeah, this, that, that this... sounds rather funny than anything else that like you said, <laughs> you felt a bit <laughs> alone in this and uh, tried to like, yeah, work yourself Man, into this, it. This was not the, 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 the real fun started because then after a while, I think one year in time, uh, I had a meeting with Marcus Brown and he said, oh, Good. You all you have all these nice clients like Telecom and Vodafone and, and Orange. And now uh, we give you a PL, so a profit and loss uh, uh, thing. And I uh, I was the only product division inside Wirecard that had a PL actually. So we not have to only to create this kind of products. We have to take them to financial success, which I think was <laughs> pretty outstanding. And uh, Marcus, uh, our CEO, was so stubborn on this that I didn't receive my bonus, I think, uh, for years, actually, because he was saying, ah, you lacking this kind of aggressiveness when it comes to revenue production, actually. <laughs> But when you look back at this kind of stuff, it's pretty funny. Yeah, it sounds, yeah, it sounds, I don't know, it sounds rather stupid than anything else. Because, yeah, was, especially because if, you're starting to, if you're starting to build up something, you need to go into invest. So it's, it's normal that if you build something new up, it's, it's rather rare that you can directly create a profit, especially if you need to build a, a whole ecosystem. <laughs> from yeah, the this, was the first, this was the first problem. The second problem was um, that uh, you don't have, you are a technical unit, right? You don't have a sales unit um, that is reporting to you. So how can you create revenue when the sales are not incentivized? And Marcus was always saying this kind of, okay, if your product is good, um, it will sell. Uh, if it's not good, it will not be, will not be successful in in commercial ways, right? And this was the problem, um, and this was crazy. And uh, we discussed this over and over again. And it was pretty stubborn on this. Um, that there was a lot of pressure on me um, to make these solutions uh, also a financial success, which was not. I mean, I didn't control marketing. I didn't control sales. I didn't control a lot of nitty-gritty things in the in the company. Um, what I tried to control were the technical entities. Um, but this was a typical wirecut step for me yeah, to um, yeah to put enormous amounts of of pressure on someone. Um, because this was not a friendly company, not like a corporate company or something like this, at least on my level, it was a very aggressive uh, company. And this was part of the game. Mm. It, definitely interesting, definitely interesting. Especially if, like, I completely disagree with uh, Mr. Brown there. Um, for example, um, Deban developed a system called Touch and Travel with the mm -hmm. idea that you don't need to worry about any tickets or anything. You just um, mm -hmm. log in into the, the train station you want to start and uh, like with your cell phone, with an NFC <clears> chip, <throat> really easy. Just hold it there or scan your QR code. And then you, when you exit, you just scan it again and he automatically mm -hmm. um, books the cheapest ticket for you. Like see what discount makes sense and what else. And then you, you're finished. It's mm -hmm. amazing. It's such a good idea, but they didn't do marketing on it. So kind of nobody mm -hmm. knows. And then it just gone off because nobody used it. They, and they said, ah, probably it wasn't good, but it was really well made. They just didn't do marketing mm -hmm. for it. They just 
didn't brought it out to the world. And yeah, yeah. In, I, I saw this also. We, we in did another also. example. In another mm. example, for example, is that like you, you're for a long time be able to create digital um, stamps for for from with the post, mm. and they didn't mm. they never advertised it. And then I don't know. I think some IT magazine or whatever posted it or like like mm. wrote about it, and then their their server crashed because suddenly all the people <laughs> want to use it. <laughs> and it's a typical example that like they build it. At least good enough products. Like the, the the experience was really good. I really I really liked it. At least with the with the mm -hmm. barn, and but it was not used enough. So they they stopped it. Even if they would if they would push it in a marketing perspective, they'd probably take off, and would yeah, yeah. be successful. And so, I, mean, I mean I mean the the perfect example is also this mobile payment in the very beginning, right? Uh, Deutsche Telekom, Vodafone, all these brands were trying to do it because they thought we are the mobile operators we have to go in there but they were just too early in time uh, mm. um, all these kind of initiatives were not successful when it comes to um, customer activation right um, especially in Germany for, for quite a long time um, people were paying cash or traditional cards and even now even in this kind of pandemic um, how many people do you see outside of Berlin Mitte um, using their phone to pay? I mean, mobile payment payment means not only NFC you could use, but also mm -hmm. like for example, scanning a QR code, like how Alipay uses it. Yeah, or, or how Lidl um, is actually using it. Uh, but I think the the traction still of these kind of uh, of products is is still not there where we expected it to be actually, because we thought. I mean, look at China; everybody is doing everything with their phone. Look at Singapore. Look at other markets. The change must also hit uh, Germany in, at a certain point of time. But all these initiatives back then, starting two thousand twelve. 2013 and 14, they were much too early and they were over-promising or overestimating the, yeah, the, um, the power that uh, um, these solutions have in, in, in the view of, of, of customer. Customer were, in, in a, to a certain extent, not really interested in mobile payment. They don't saw the benefit. And especially you can't Create it if you make transitions faster, make the experience there with faster transitions easier. So in in in, 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 in payment, also, everything is about the speed of the transaction, right? I always said this little theory that um, payment has a lot to do with pain. So nobody likes to pay, right? And everything that is shortening the the the, the process of the payment um, will be at the end successful because. Um, the smaller the touch point really is, the more successful it is. And if you see uh, the, the tremendous success of PayPal is um, all about it making this kind of one-click experience, making shorting the, the, the process of payment. Um, but in the end, uh, doing a, a payment transaction with the phone for most of the people, um, especially also in this time with masks or something, um, has the same time as uh, a card transaction so mm, it's yeah. still it's still um, not there everywhere so i i'm, I'm standing in an aldi supermarket uh, for every day because now buying all the groceries for the for the entire company and i always look at the cashier situation 
in front of me and I was uh, smile when someone is paying with his mobile phone. But in a lot of cases, even in Munich, even in the city, people are paying cash or with a credit card, not even contactless. Yeah. So I think even Germany has an 80% rate <laughs> cash payment or something like ridiculously yeah, it's, high. It's around 50, 54 or something. Um, yeah. it, it changed a bit um, actually through, through the pandemic, but still there is a certain, I would say, cultural habit of um, using cash. Of um, liking uh, cash. Mm. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's coming from the generation of our parents right and this experience of uh, this kind of war uh, background um that only cash was um the, the right uh, the right thing to have and we all learned this from 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 the former generation it's hard to change this <coughs> sorry and you talk you said like that the company culture was mm -hmm. kind of aggressive at least on the level you worked in why mm -hmm. why did you stay there so long like why did you cope up with that even if it costs you the bonus <laughs> in a lot of years uh, mm. because you didn't hit your profit loss uh, profit loss uh, expectations I always like the challenge I have to say when he was talking about the PL I was thinking to myself you have to make it work um, uh, I was stupid enough to to take this uh, the challenge i didn't uh, i thought if i if i will make this a success um this is um uh, this is w what i need to do right um because i'm i'm not experienced and I'm, I'm, i don't have this kind of technical background i thought to myself you have to make it work and uh, and i really worked enormously um To, to create this kind of success. But from the revenue potential, it, it wasn't. And um, this has a lot of reasons, right? Um, and not all were connected to me. Some were also connected to, um, I would say, the very special uh, story of Wirecard. So in a lot of cases, when, um, when the going was tough and when the board needed a new press release and something like this, they didn't talk much about revenue or something. They were also only talking about getting this client to sign the contract. And in a lot of cases, they were, you know, giving away solutions for free, mostly, uh, to get a good name. So Alipay was a good example for this. I mean, they wanted Alipay so badly. Um, so there was a technical dimension to make Alipay work and on cashier systems in Europe. But from a revenue potential, I think we we gave it totally away to to because we were more interested in the press release um, than in the uh, revenue of this kind of business. Yeah, which which is interesting. Out of my gut feeling, I would say that's not the best tactic you can go. But maybe <laughs> if you're already <laughs> no, in, no, in no. a stock stock uh, stock company and you have a you own a lot of stock as company. Maybe it's also valid tech. I'm not sure. Like out of my gut feeling, mm. out of a solid business, I would say that's not the best <laughs> no, idea no, in the most, world. Mm, yeah, you're absolutely right. But but you always thought like, okay, I mean, you're not actually you're not doing uh, the revenue, which was pretty clear because I mean it was a pretty young uh, area where I was working at, and you thought, okay, these all these other units with the more traditional um, uh, payment methods like acquiring or something, they will make the money. Actually, so and you always thought that if you want to enter a market. You have to invest. 
But this was not directly connected to my PNL, right? This, I mean, uh, um, so the, the, the short answer to the question, why, why did I do it? Um, I thought to myself, uh, I'm up to the challenge. I, uh, I need to prove that I'm, that I can do it. And after a while, I was, I was looking at the market. I, I'm being really honest and I was writing about this in my book. I was looking, scanning the market about yeah, other positions, but it was not the 100% fit. I have to say this. Uh, sometimes I had to go to San Francisco. Sometimes I had to go to London. I have two kids uh, there in school in Munich and I have a wife who's working in uh, also quite successfully so i didn't i didn't came out of my comfort zone because the right offer at the right time was not there if you if you could go back <clears throat> in time to the start of a challenge also during the challenge the big challenge you had would you do something different like would you change something yeah i would be i would really mu be much more stubborn and and don't accept this kind of nonsense of of I mean, um, creating this PNL, right? This was uh, this was something that an experienced tech guy wouldn't ac accept. So I was the only product division that had this because I was the stupid guy um, at the very top of this division. So I was always uh, in this kind of uh, I have to make it mode. And uh, if a proper tech guy with some experience would have this kind of job, he would. Have not, he would for sure not accept um, a PL. Nobody would. Yeah. Um, and you were, you, was, <clears throat> and you I were couldn't say I was young and about stupid. The, <laughs> you were too excited about the challenge because yeah. you, you saw that the others didn't have it. So, but then as you accepted, yeah. you didn't change it back. Mm. Yeah, the other were making jokes about this, right? They were like mm. uh, the other VPs of technical product division. There were not so many. They were making constantly jokes about this. Um, and um, yeah, I was not young back then. I couldn't say I was young and stupid. I was only stupid uh, doing this. But this is the, um, I would say the, the main thing about me is that I'm more interested in the challenges um, and in, in, this, in this case, this was really a tremendous mistake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's probably also plays along into the whole story of Wirecard that there are yeah. like a lot of challenges you want to tackle and you want to have goals and then you run behind it and you rather take the name than the revenue and try to get it bigger, faster. And um, yeah, it, yeah, it's it's um it's interesting and also yeah. if you make mm -hmm. one decision and you go to one step there's certain sunk cost in a certain point so it's harder mm -hmm. to to go back if you as long as you do an error like it's harder to admit mm -hmm. you did an error and say hey stop here yeah but you can't take it back and it's a certain point right suddenly you have 100 people working for you and and, yeah. and you can't take this Uh, one thing back, right? And um, yeah, it, in the very beginning, you say something like, okay, challenge accepted or something like that, because you are absolutely not the, the most intelligent guy in the room. Um, but later, you can't take it back. You cannot go there and say, um, I cannot do it. And um, 
So uh, it was a real struggle. And uh, I was uh, pretty happy that in 2017, I was um, due to a reorganization. Um, I was leaving the technical division and I was overtaking uh, Wirecard Labs as the global innovation uh, unit of Wirecard. Well, I was building Wirecard Labs as a global innovation unit. Um, so I was I was going away from the, the PL because the PL was like um, giving me a very, very, very hard time. And, and looking back, right, looking back at all of this, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I still don't understand it because I mean, uh, in the end, they were like, uh, you know, um, they must have known um, uh, what they were doing, and they were taking so, so many pressure on a lot of people um, with the PNL and to 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 get to this kind of numbers and stuff like this. But um, someone knew that there was something. Uh, <laughs> That, that these kind of numbers didn't count for the company, right? And and and, uh, but this was the, the 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 way I looked at the company uh, as someone who was under a lot of pressure, uh, fulfilling all the compliance rules, right? Fulfilling the revenue. Uh, uh, visions of the board, fulfilling the technical needs of various clients that Jan Marschalek uh, brought because it was his network and they wanted certain things and stuff like this. And this was kind of crazy um, that they all created this kind of pressure for, for a lot of people. And it's not also only you and your division which had the pressure. It's probably no, no, no. A lot of people, a lot of people had this. Uh, I remember this kind of sales guys. I think every year they had to create thirty percent more revenue, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this was kind of this. It was not so. It was fun to work with the company because the teams were great. Like I mean, this was a really truly international team in the outskirts of. of Of Munich, uh, everybody was talking English. Um, I think in certain areas, like the technical development, uh, over 90% of people were coming from a foreign background, right? It was truly something uh, very outstanding in this, in, in this area. And um, it was fun to work there because it was like brilliant people. But um, at a certain level, I think that... Uh, there was tremendous pressure to make things work. Yeah. And to be honest, you said like at a certain point, you can't go there and uh, correct the mistake. Out of my perspective, the main point is that like it's, it's getting harder and harder to be honest to yourself that you made something yep. wrong because mm -hmm. it's way harder for to see for yourself mistakes you do. It's way easier to see mistakes I would do. Like for the VPs, it was e really easy to see that like you did the mistake there with the profit loss. Mm -hmm. um, challenge but probably they didn't see their own mistakes because that's in our nature as human and as mm. longer you do the mistake as harder is it for you to correct it and to to stand up for it and to to be honest to yourself okay that's an error and i will fix it now whatever it needs to take and, mm -hmm. um, this is like yeah that's a, a typical challenge you face also an innovation round too It's mm. hard to, to see the truth in front of you and to see if it works or not, or if you just need to work harder on it to, to make it work. Because mm. innovation, at least, it's, it's in the nature that's hard and not easy. Yeah. And um, then to, to realize if, if you 
just need to work harder or you you're running into a debt and that's one of the out of my perspective one of the biggest challenges you face as an innovator um, in your daily work to figuring out okay on a true side yeah. is this still smart what i do here i, I think the the um I think for me, uh, when I was running innovation, was also the the, the biggest thing uh, um, in my mind. I, I always had this PNL thing uh, going. I didn't have the the concrete PNL, but I thought to myself, okay, um, if you do proper innovation, in the end, after a few years' time, you have to create revenue with your solutions, with your products, with your ideas, and something like that. And um, this was pretty hard because um, you have to, in in a way, you have to organize a proper handover uh, concept, right? You can do easily. You can do hundreds or uh, of POCs and, and mock-ups and uh, things that are not working properly. But the problem is... Um, is this really adding value to the company or is it just a marketing story? And I was always on, always convinced that I wanted uh, it to, to, to work, right? To create some kind of product or a new service or new dimension uh, that in the end were, you know, um, that we created a handover to the product guys and really creating a, Uh, a next level product and this was super hard to do right uh, because this is the uh, i would say the um uh the, the gold standard uh, a lot of innovators that i met uh, they their kpis were like uh, whatever pucs or startup corporations or something like this but if you really think okay uh Let's set up some innovation controlling and look where the money is going and look how you can, you know, um, uh, create sources of revenue and ABDR in the end. This is pretty tough. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's definitely, I agree completely with you. You should have KPIs there, meaningful KPIs, yeah. um, as soon as, as possible. And even if the KPIs say that the numbers are low it's good to know them because you need to be able to measure to improve and um, you should also has always an idea how you create a working business model i completely agree mm -hmm. also with that like um if if you don't have a business model like then you don't have a business idea then you need to pivot and yeah then the, the biggest challenge is to 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 see to be honest if the kpis will come up in the right direction or if you need to pivot. And yeah. yeah. And I think this is an, an, also a different thing, even have, if you have all of this, right? If you have your business canvas and um, the great numbers. I, I was going to the product guys with the, with really great ideas, but they were looking at me and saying, right, um, you can come back in 2025 because our roadmap is packed because we need to do this that this uh, for for clients, right? There's Aldi, whatever, Lidl, um, airlines waiting for this and this feature. Um, so um, you have to wait until we are over and the right time is. So even if you have the numbers, if you have the business case, if you have, if you say something like this is a really convincing idea um, and stuff like this, this doesn't, doesn't, um, uh, doesn't um, 
mean that this will be going directly in productization. Uh, in a lot of cases, if the product guys are not involved from the very beginning, they will not support this kind of thing because uh, they will see this as a, uh, you know, a threat or something. So when we started innovation, um, the main thing at Wirecard was to involve the entire product organization or the entire organization into the process of uh, um innovation or the next level products from the very early stage on, uh, because if you come to them in the later stage, they will block you because yep. uh, quite naturally, they're not interested in something like this. There is no product guy um, dreaming about uh, new products. These kind of guys are always stuck in this kind of escalation product uh, uh, processes that they are in, right? Yeah, there's too much to do and there's not enough time. Right, there's always much to do. And, and this is always more um, important than uh, doing something completely new. So you would, as an innovation guy, you will not get the rock star developers, right? Because they are yeah. sitting somewhere else. So you have to create a really a system um, where everybody is... Um, Uh, having or seeing a win-win situation for his, for him and for his uh, KPIs actually um, with innovation. And this is, I think, is the most complex thing to create these kind of win-win situations for everybody. Yeah. And it's typical stakeholder management. And then you need to kind yeah. of prove that the impact is great enough. So kind of like with Alipay, where you get like the mm -hmm. whole company behind it and they change. Did you have another example where you successfully were able to push a big project in because it, it it showed bigger impact or it promised bigger impact yeah sure we did and we did not only do the the mobile wallets we did also mobile acceptance or card acceptance via mobile phones and uh, this is what sum up is doing uh, actually mm -hmm. quite pretty successful and um, we started this uh, and we did this in Asia we did this in India uh, so um, emerging markets right where it's not so easy for a merchant to buy an Ingenico terminal for whatever uh, 700 euros right and um, to accept card payments he just also only needed his, uh, his phone and uh, a dongle or an, a bluetooth uh, um, accessory and 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 getting this, really changing this and seeing how much, how tremendous this works was really interesting. But it was a lot of work to do something in a, in an area like India where, you know, only, you know, where the landscape of Android phones is <laughs> pretty outstanding from the European position, where certain humidity factors, where a lot of factors kick in. Um, so you need solutions were really 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 stable and, and work there and uh, this was exciting really to do something like this and how are you able to push it in the foreign market like india where like it's not for a german company it's not normal to have access there and to push it there into the market yeah i know that the, the history of wirecut is very much connected with india so we had a client there and he saw what i'm doing and he said okay let's take it to india and i was also there i was taking the challenge i was thinking to myself can't be that hard but i was <laughs> i mean there was a 
intelligent guy saying something like, if you know in the very beginning how hard it will get, you will never start it, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Because in the very beginning, you need this kind of stupidity, right? Oh, yeah. this can't be so complex. Because otherwise, around you will not be able to do it, right? You need this, this energy in the very beginning. And uh, afterwards, the frustration is coming anyway and i guess for Elon musk maybe it's the same right you start with yeah. something okay let's uh, uh let's fire a rocket uh, into the space right and then you see how bloody complicated this gets so in the very beginning you need this stupidity or levity um that you it's easy right let's do yep. it definitely <laughs> um so You, you work properly a lot and you said already that you have also two, two kids. So what do you think about work-life balance? Gosh, it's a very good question. I was thinking about this before our talk because, I mean, I think I have the, the biggest uh, change in my work-life balance. When I was working for, for Wirecat, I was, I was, I, I think I was not there um, here at home, right? I was, uh, I, even when I was there, I was, was my hat. I was always with the company. I mean, a lot of people know this. I was looking at my emails at three o'clock in the night. I was looking at my emails when I was waking up, I was uh, constantly with the company. I was traveling a lot. I was doing a, a lot of concept. I was really in, in my book, bad company. I was also saying, I lived the wire cut life. And, um, Right in August, uh, when this life was over, it, um, it was crazy. Right, it was like from 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 one uh, from one point to the other, from one uh, second to the other, I was living a totally different life. I was writing a book, which is uh, I can tell you a super lonely job. Right, um, when you when you're working in a, in a big team in a company, you are always connected to others. You You do things because other things are done because other people are doing stuff, right? You're always um, in this kind of network of, of uh, doing things. If you write a book, you don't need a permission. You don't need a Zoom call. You don't need kind of uh, a license or something like this. It's only between you and your MacBook, sorry to say. And this was a crazy, absolutely crazy experience for me. Um, because the the company, the, the publishing house, they wanted the book like in four months, and I was, I was, I was uh, taking the challenge again, and um, it was super hard to do, and, and not only to do, but but also to write something in a proper way that they don't need a ghostwriter and and stuff like this, and. Um, Yeah, it was a totally from from one week to the other. I was living a total different life, and uh, I still do live a um, different life because I'm I'm uh, I'm involved in the um, in the movie. The, the, we sold the film rights. We're working on the um, uh, on the movie right now, and um, I'm doing a lot of consulting jobs and stuff like this. But I'm not doing like this corporate job anymore that I did with Wirecard. So my work life is now totally different so when the kids come home i'm doing a proper meal and stuff like this and uh, it's crazy i enjoy it but sometimes uh, i miss the the business life that wirecut was providing right so you still think more about work than than life or than family you would say because you said like you fought all the time about work 
yeah it, what i liked about work was the, was the team right it's just it is if you work in a corporate environment for 15 years you know everybody most of the people you know yeah they know you because they do these fancy videos and and keynotes and you get a lot of uh, i would say positivity back right you go in a, to the canteen people talk to you you go to i mean everybody knew you working for a ducks company and stuff like this and all of this is uh also creating something with your personality right you get this you get into the role of this corporate guy and you get a lot of props with that and 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 Writing the book was an experience that was the total opposite that um, confronted me with a lot of, uh, I would say, um, yeah, weaknesses and and um, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and a lot of things that I, I didn't know. Can I finish this kind of bloody work and in a proper way and stuff like this? So I was struggling a lot, and, and nobody could help me because nobody did something like this. But in the end, it was 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 good. But I mean, you have when the book is was coming out, there was a lot of controversies and stuff like this. So it was pretty pretty hard in the very beginning to go through all of this. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting experiment because we uh, we tend to define ourselves through our work, and mm -hmm. then um, sometimes too much to our work, and then it's interesting when we. Sh when we put this away and take this away, the work, what mm -hmm. stays, like what, what is left. And then, um, yeah, that's, that's probably <clears throat> one of the more interesting challenges everyone faces. And uh, if they didn't face it so far, they will probably face it at the point of retirement. Then uh, face this question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what's my, my next? Wife, yeah, yeah, my wife always say like uh, we had this German expression "Papa and the Porters." <laughs> she would say, "Now you are here all the time. This is frightening, right?" And uh, thinking about new processes in the household and stuff like this. So, yeah, I, I, I did it, and uh, it's a. Um, It's, it's a pretty um, lonely experience to be not part of the of these kind of big organization. But I have to say, I always wanted to write a book. Um, I was always obsessed by this kind of idea. Uh, even when back then, when, when I started my career, when I was studying in journalism, when I was studying German literature, I was always like thinking I need to write books at a certain point of time. Yeah, it's a natural, uh, was, it's a natural tendency probably for someone <laughs> yeah, to study literature that they want to yeah. write their own book. Yeah. So except yeah. your own book, what would you say are your favorite books? I have to say that I was uh, I was raised a lot with American uh, literature, so uh, Hemingway, Norman Mailer, Don DeLillo, um, and I, I, I really I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm, I have to say that I'm not reading that much of German literature. Sometimes it's um, it's a lot of I think it's. Uh, It's always very, very deep. So I try to, uh, I enjoy Brett Easton Ellis, T.C. Boyle, these kind of uh, people who have a, a different view or different uh, tempo or different speed in uh, telling stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and you still read them today? Like, well, at least... This time, um, I, I, yeah, I have to say, I, 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 I was reading a lot of books, but uh, it's, it's not 
a big uh, secret. I'm, I'm writing a new book right now. And the problem is I, if I write a book, if I write something, I am not able to read other books because I, if I do so, I would overtake the style completely. And I, was yeah, always, okay. I, would, I would always think, oh, this is, ah, look how cool these people write. And then I will write the same way. So yeah. uh, in really, in really developing this and this, uh, this voice of my own, I, I'm, I'm staying away from reading too much actually right now in the, in the very moment. Yeah, makes sense. Interesting. And uh, my last two questions is for you. Um, if you could go back in time to your 18 or 19 year old self, what would God. you tell yourself? Gosh, this is a, also a super hard question. I mean, I was always, I had a totally different career that, that a lot of uh, people who are listening to this podcast, right? I was starting work when I was 29. Um, I was working in, in the nightlife in Munich and I was studying. I was not taking things too serious. And I, 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 I think to myself, maybe if I talk to my younger me, I would say, keep it this way a little bit longer um, rather than uh, throw all your energy into, you know, uh, starting to make a career, actually. Looking back, I have to say. Uh, it's have to it's say, interesting that you waited so long, like until 29 before you worked and you still said you should have waited longer. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting advice. So yeah, uh, if you could go back to your... 30 years of where you started to work for one year what for advice would you give yourself there <laughs> yeah. I, I, when i was starting working really i was really wanting to prove that i can i, I I'm, i'm i'm taking that i'm able to make a career right and um and i think I, maybe i would say let a little bit loose, right? Uh, relax a bit. Uh, um, you don't have to change the world in, in two minutes. But uh, when I was uh, taking this step, I was always convinced I have to prove that I, I can make it. I can be successful in the world of business. Mm -hmm. And then if we go further and you're 40 years old, so what would you tell us uh, don't 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 agree to any pnl right that they present <laughs> you <laughs> no no i just uh, um i think that the, the biggest mistake that i i i uh, did i was thinking to myself okay i accept the challenge right that uh, we talked mm. about this and i would say don't do this that that's not worth it right if something is not uh, if something is not possible right don't don't do stuff like this and uh, don't challenge you and don't um, don't treat you in this way um, yeah this was a huge huge mistake but also it was part of the success that i had for years Cool. Thank you very much. Jörn, it was a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you really for, the, for the opportunity to talk here. See you next time, Thank guys. You. Bye bye.